Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. There's a runaway trolley barreling down the railway tracks. Ahead on the tracks, there are five people tied up and unable to move. The trolley's headed straight for them. You are standing some distance off in the train yard next to a lever. If you pull this lever, the trolley will switch to a different set of tracks. However, you notice that there is one person on the sidetrack. You have two options. Do nothing and allow the trolley to kill the five people on the main track or pull the lever diverting the trolley onto the sidetrack where it will kill one person. Which is the right thing to do? Well, my friends, I am thrilled to have on the podcast today the man who is going to solve all of these questions, all of life's questions, I dare say. <laughs> I am having on the podcast today um, a dear friend and professor of mine, uh, formerly my seminary professor, once upon a time, Craig, many, many moons ago. Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Craig Hovey received his PhD from the University of Cambridge, uh, is a Christian ethicist working now at Ashland University, where he formerly directed the Center for Nonviolence. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Ashland Center for Nonviolence. Ashland Center for Nonviolence and is the author of several books uh, to share in the body a theology of martyrdom for today's church. Speak Thus Christian Language in Church and World Nietzsche and Theology. Bearing True Witness, Truthfulness in Christian Practice, and a volume called Exploring Christian Ethics, which is something that we want to do on the episode today. Craig, thank you so much for tuning in from Ashland, Ohio. Oh, you're uh, welcome. I really appreciate your time. Excited to be here. Can't wait. So you don't come from Ashland, Craig. You ended up in Ashland of, That's right. uh, for, for, for the sake of this of this sort of new career path, not in the seminary, but now uh, teaching undergraduates at, at this university. Uh, but before that, you hailed from California, of all mm -hmm. places. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we have a new guest on the podcast, I usually just ask a little bit of the background. And, and part of that background is more or less sort of, how did you come to know the Lord? How did you come to faith? What's that background look like? Is it later in life? Did you grow up in the church? What, what's the story there with your background? Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for having me. I'm super excited. I uh, can't wait to get to the trolley problem, which we'll get to in due course. But uh, I was raised as a Christian. And, um, and for me, the academic study of theology and um, uh, the Bible and uh, later on Christian ethics it's always been super organic in terms of its link in with my own faith journey and faith life. Um, I remember um, really being, uh, you know, puzzling uh, seriously over theological topics when I was in high school and um, being part of a youth group that, um, you know, there were some of us who really wanted to go there and had a youth pastor who encouraged us that way. And uh, so when I went to college at UC San Diego, I studied um, biology, but my heart wasn't in it. Uh, I enjoyed it, but um, it took until my senior year, um, a friend said, hey, you seem to be reading a lot of theology in your spare time. Maybe you should go into that. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's not that big of a shift. You know, biology, theology, they, they rhyme, you know, I guess I can't be that different. <laughs> um, so I just switched and uh, that, you know, if I just, um, uh, and then I went to Fuller Seminary, uh, for two master's degrees and absolutely loved every minute of it. And it was, it was so, um, it, it was overwhelming in terms of my love for everything I studied there. I, you know, I'd take a new Testament class and go, Oh my gosh, I love the new Testament. And I'd take old Testament. Oh my gosh, I love the old Testament. You know? <laughs> yeah, so I was yeah. like, okay, this is ridiculous. I need to narrow this down. Um, uh, but anyway, I mean, I, eventually did that. But I mean, as we'll get into it, I suppose, one of the things I'm, uh, I, I really feel strongly that Christian ethics and theology need to go together, that we need to have a really rich, and, and the study of the Bible. I mean, this is maybe an area I've, um, I've had the occasion to, to 
um, go into greater depth in recent years, but um, I think the, you know, the, these things can tend to be separated and it makes sense to do so in a heuristic kind of way. You know, we have to have one class now and another class later, but, but really um, all of these things need to be uh, combined. And, and I'll say one cool thing that's happened in the last year is I've been, um, I've been asked to preach on average about once a month at a mm. couple of Presbyterian churches uh, in the Ashland area. And uh, what a great, you know, discipline. My brother's a, pa a pastor and he has to preach every week as, as <laughs> you do. And I'm glad I don't have to do that. Um, but, you know, and then I come to think, well, actually preaching and teaching aren't that different. And I think that's good. You know, I mean, they, they should be a little bit different. Um, but it, what a great discipline for me. And I've just had such a great time over the last probably 13 or 14 months. Um, preparing sermons and kind of connecting with my own faith life and the faith life of these these presbyterians uh but then i also say to them look you when you ask a professor to preach to you you're going to get a professor sermon sorry about that you know so quite a lot of um academic stuff but it's been a good discipline for me that's awesome. uh, to, to kind of address that audience well and like you said even you know knowing intellectually that certain things should be combined and then being able to actually combine them in a practice mm -hmm. in a congregation on a Sunday, um, you know, that uh, all, all to the good of, of being able to say, yeah, these things go together and here's maybe ways that that would work. You know? Yeah. So like I've been preaching from the lectionary and there's always an old Testament reading and the gospel and a new Testament reading. And um, in my experience, churches that, that, use the lectionary, the, the pastor, the preacher tends to go for the, the easiest one and uh, text. <laughs> and it tends to be the gospel because there's a narrative there and it's sort of yeah. fun. And we all know we should be thinking about Jesus in church. Uh, but I've, I've gone out of my way to try to preach the Old Testament. Um, you know, and that's, that's tricky. I mean, as a Christian, how do you read the Old Testament? So I, right. just last week, I was preaching on the, um, the death of Absalom from mm. second Samuel, you yeah. know, and I'd, I'd never preached on that. I never really thought deeply about that story, but um, you know, I'm glad I did. That's awesome. And and as far as your work in in Ashland, you've been there for a decade now. Yeah, uh, twelve years. Okay, more of, more of a decade. Mm -hmm. And and you are no longer, but you said um, you were the executive director of the Ashland Center for Nonviolence. So did you start that? Was that something that was there before? Uh, it was a colleague of mine in the English department who started it. And uh, what a great organization. I think I, I grew a lot in terms of my ability to talk about uh, why peace and nonviolence are important. But my native way of talking about it is in theological terms. And it's not, it's not a Christian group per se, although a lot of our people were involved in um, peace, in the peace movement for religious reasons, I kind of felt like, and I'm sort of um, unsettled on this question, you know, I, it, it's unclear to me how to, how to talk about nonviolence in a way that's not deeply connected to my Christian faith. Right. I respect, people can do it, you know, absolutely do it. Um, but I don't think, for me, there's not a lot there. I mean, I certainly want a world that's more peaceful rather than less. Um, and if we end up talking again more specifically about issues of peace and nonviolence, I can go into um, how I think Christians ought to think about these things. Uh, but I was often in that group um, in a position where I, you know, I, I'd be speaking to the Rotary Club or the Kiwanis Club about what we do as an organization. And what I really wanted to talk about was Jesus, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, you know, love your enemies um, yeah. or sacrifice or does blood, you know, what does it mean? you know, what are our ideas linking blood and atonement? Does violence really improve things? You know, and, and, and we culturally have a lot of those ideas that, that drive us to war. Um, and a lot of them have, are done so with Christian help. And I think that's a disaster. And I think there's a theological um, error there, but I couldn't, I can't talk that way to right. the Kiwanis club, you know? Right. And so, uh, so I never really got, um, I never really found my voice, I guess, my kind of secular voice. Mm -hmm. And maybe that says something about, you know, my training or my convictions about what, what it means to um, 
think ethically as a Christian. But uh, so I didn't, uh, uh, I left the organization in really capable hands. In some ways, I'm sort of relieved to be able to kind of inhabit a more um, straightforwardly uh, theological space. You know, I'm back to being just a, just a theologian, just a Christian <laughs> ethicist. And so I hopefully won't be called on too much to be like, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. But why should other people um, right. do nonviolence? Because I'm not, I'm not sure I have the best answer to that. Right. Well, you know, in having you on, you know, selfishly, my experience at Fuller Seminary um, was that, you know, you taught this class and it was a class on Christian ethics. I, I forget exactly how it was framed or what the titles were, but um, and the way that you taught Christian ethics um, was something that was completely transformative for me. And so I know uh, best is not a theological category. Um, but you know, you were, it was the best class. It was my best teacher. Um, and, and it was, it was decisive in the way that, you know, when you encounter a, a new author, a new book, and it's like, you're never going to not know this or read that it's always going to influence and affect you. Mm -hmm. And, um, not only that class and then the subsequent class that you taught on political theology, I did an independent study with you on Nietzsche. And I mean, it was just like, you know, as much as I could get before you were gone and before I was gone or something, because there was, it was two things. The way that you approached the class, literally just the way you taught the class was so different from almost any other class I'd ever taken. And I, someone who was probably in higher education, probably, probably in college land for 20 years as a student almost. <laughs> Yeah. So um, the way you taught it was just enlivening for me, the way you expected things of the students, the way you designed sort of a response system of reading and response uh, that the students would lead and sort of direct part of the discussion. Mm -hmm. um, but then part of class would be lecture. This was at the old sort of Irvine campus before mm -hmm. it went the way of all things. Um, and I just remember being at seminary and being in a class where it was like, okay, this is a, a graduate class. This is a professor who expects us to do graduate level work. A lot of times in seminary or in Christian college land, um, yeah. it can be like, you know, if you're well-meaning and you know, mm -hmm. you're nice and you're on your way to being a, a nice, well-meaning pastor. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just write the paper and, you know, we'll try to, we'll try to just, I, it's not your thing. You're not, you're not, you're not an academic kid or whatever. Um, and I, you know, you could feel that from some professors, you could feel that from different, you certainly could feel that from most students that, that it was like, uh, how much reading? And I remember thinking like, what? Like we're in grad school. Like this is, this is why we're here. Like what you described about being in seminary and like just being interested in everything. I, that's yeah. more my mode. And, and I just remember, oh, this is a class in which all those things sort of met in this sort of beautiful harmony, but also mm. every single class it was on, you know, a particular topic, particular topic. Um, every single class was just sort of mind blowing and provocative in its centering of Christ and the Christian life as living uh, a Christian life as a witness to Jesus. And it was so simple in one sense. And it was so obvious um, once it was said, and it was so inescapable, um, you know, as a preacher, as a pastor. Um, but it wasn't being said that way. And, and it was usually being said in, in silly ways or in, in very piecemeal ways, like the way I opened the podcast, right? Mm -hmm. um, the Christian life. Well, what, what do you do if, you know, yeah. there's a, there's a baby that's born, but it's from a sheep and it's got half of its parts are from a sheep right. and half of it's right. a baby. What do you do if, well, if someone jumps out of a van and attacks your family, you know, and there's a gun on the ground, you know, what do you do if, and, you know, this just sort of hyper hypothetical world of what do you do or what if um, responses and saying, like, that's how we figure out what it means to live a moral life or do the right thing or be, yeah. or be Christian in the world. And mm -hmm. I remember, you know, your class blowing that up and saying, this is, this is fundamentally not how to think about yeah. it. About well, what's funny about that is I, I mean, you, you caught me or I caught you at the very beginning of my career. And I had just had never, I mean, I, there are a lot of things that I would 
probably do differently. Although you benefited from my being fresh out of grad school and having yeah. these really high expectations for myself and you guys, I'm sure that didn't work for everyone. And I apologize. I loved it, <laughs> but I can tell you loved it. And that was fun for me too. But I, you know, I've never been trained in that kind of t- uh, textbook style of ethics where you have the trolley problem or what do you do if, yeah. and you know, a lot of what I do now with, uh, I, I introduce those ideas uh, to my undergrads and they, their eyes light up because, oh, this connects with what they think ethics is all about. Right. But then I, I do it to dismantle their idea of what <laughs> ethics is all about. I think when, when you were in my classes, I, I wasn't, I hadn't even gone there. You know, it was so, um, I mean, my training was all about the fundamentals, like the, what is the deep narrative that, that structures our whole existence? You know, what is the shape of the universe, <laughs> you know? And so, I mean, it, when, when you live there for a while and someone throws out a, what do you do if kind of thing, or, you know, the fat person stuck in the mouth of a cave and there's dynamite and everyone, the water's rising. And, you know, do you blow up your friend to save everyone? I mean, they're all versions of the same thing. You tend to be, yeah. um, you know, and we can maybe eke out some wisdom from that. Usually it reveals uh, more so reveals what's going on in our moral thinking more than anything else, but it doesn't move us. It doesn't move us anywhere. And it doesn't uh, like, do you want to, can I get into the trolley problem? Cause I'm actually, I use that to, uh, I teach a class called taking human life. Okay. And it's, um, you know, we talk about suicide, euthanasia, abortion, capital punishment and war, but we spend the first part on moral theory. And I, I throw out the trolley problem as a way of introducing a principle that Thomas Aquinas, the 13th century theologian, um, uh, um, a principle that he developed that's come to be called double effect. And the students really respond well to double effect. And I, so I've, this is where I've sort of, I continue using the trolley problem because it illustrates something. And so I'm, I, I just kind of go through this because um, there's a, a level at which I think it is worth thinking about the principles uh, of moral thinking, but then the next step, and this is what I do in the class, I think the next step needs to be to utterly destroy the way that principles have their hold on our thinking. So, but, uh, but so you, you introduced one half of the trolley problem or, you know, which is that you can throw a lever and right. save five people, but you know that one is being killed. And when that question is posed, most people say they would, they would throw the lever, but then the second half of this story that's often, you know, talked about is a different scenario. There's a runaway trolley and there's five people on the track, but you're on a bridge overlooking the track and, um, uh, and you're, there's a fat man on the bridge. I I realize this is the second time I've brought up a fat fat person. I know, I know. So sometimes this gets, you know, accused of being, um, I mean, introducing an element that is uh, uh, playing on people's biases against, Uh, uh, you know, but I, that's to miss the point, and I'll point that out in a second. But anyway, so then the question is, uh, you have the opportunity to push the fat man off the bridge, and it would stop the trolley. His body would stop the trolley. Um, and uh, so the math is still the same. Five is greater than one. And if you're a, in, in the language of ethics, if you're a consequentialist, then, and then you're guided by the principle that we should... Um, maximize the good consequences in the world and minimize the bad. And so if, if someone's going to die, let's make sure it's one person instead of five. And because five is greater than one, it's a math problem. And if that's the only thing working for you, then, uh, then there should be no difference between pulling the lever and pushing the man off the bridge. But the, the, uh, what's interesting is that most people say they would pull the lever, but they would not push the man. And, um, but it's, and then it's fun to get students talking about why, why would that, um, be, and some say, you know, it's, um, there's an element, it's too physical, it's too intimate in a way, you know, pushing the man, um, what Thomas called double effect is that, uh, an action can have multiple effects. Um, and so, and some of which are good and some of which are bad and the bad effect of, let's say pulling the lever is that uh, one person's gonna die. The good effect is that five are saved. But he included as a stipulation there that the bad effect cannot be the means of achieving the good effect. In other words, the death of the one, if we're talking about pulling the lever, is not, I mean, it's completely independent from saving the five. 
if that one person stepped off the track in time, the five are still saved. Whereas the death of the man on the bridge is the means of achieving the good effect. I mean, there's really no, it's, it's built into the solution. Um, and so when I, I introduce that double effect, and, and Thomas describes this in a question he, he entertains, whether it is lawful to kill in self-defense. And so, and he, his conclusion, it, I mean, it's very detailed, but his conclusion is, um, it, you know, if, if someone is attacking you uh, or breaks into your house, something like that, uh, you can only use as much force as is necessary to stop the attack. But once, once the attack has stopped, you can't kill the, uh, the attacker. But if, if in the course of getting to that point, you kill the attacker, as long as your intention was not to kill them, then it can be justified. So, so he plays with this idea of intention. So the intention it, uh, of pushing the man off the bridge, you see, it, it, you are intending his death. I mean, you're intending more than that. You're primarily motivated by saving the five, but you can't very well, you know, get away with saying, I don't intend him to die because his death is actually part of the whole story. Um, and so bringing in that language of intention is really interesting with ethics. Um, although it, it complicates the way that most, in my experience, most students want to think about ethics, which is just in terms of outcomes and consequences, because intention is internal. That's known only to the person. And we can make guesses as to what's motivating someone else. But if we're only looking at actions, which is how we tend to think about ethics kind of unreflectively, we're not including intention. But we, we all know intuitively that intention matters, right? The thought is the thought that counts. If someone you know, makes a if someone does something accidentally and they accidentally hurt you versus they hurt you on purpose, right. those are radically different actions, you know, and, and, and it's built into our laws, the differences between murder and manslaughter. Um, so, I mean, those are some principles that, that guide us. So I, I like to start off discussions of any ethics, but Christian ethics uh, with that, especially since Thomas was such an important uh, theologian. Well, and it's so, like you say, it's especially for classroom, like it's so provocative. Everyone's imagining themselves mm -hmm. in a scenario, right? It's like it, it pays quickly. And then, and then it's, but it's also this like singular moment, this completely sort of imaginary thing. Mm -hmm. And it tends to be, you know, removed from any other uh, sort of life, <laughs> yeah. any other thing befores and afters and, you know, and, and the person that's actually plugged themselves into that scenario, the kind of person they are, the kind of person they've become, the kind of person they'll be after that sort of thing, right? It has yeah. this, that, that disem it's very embodied as far as the calculus of the lives. And then it's completely disembodied as to mm -hmm. what this, who, what does it mean to be the people you are when you find yourself in situations like these or whatever it might be. And so, you know, in, at least, you know, in the way that we explored the, the question or the subject of Christian ethics, as you said, and early days, you know, in, in your teaching career, um, but it was all about the ground. It was all about the ground floor. It was all about like, well, what, wait, what are we? And even what you said before about like, yeah, nonviolence might be, peace might be a, a, a good thing. We always want more of it. Um, but Christian nonviolence or Christian, the Christian conviction about these things or the Christian formation um, that might direct these things is different or maybe even fundamentally different from other kinds of formation. And so the class that you brought us into once upon a time was, was getting us... Uh, many of us for the first time to, to think about how we become the people we are, um, how, how habits, practices, language, conviction, you know, all the things before and all the things after the typical hypothetical yeah. ethics questions. And, and yeah. that's what was so sort of ground shaking for us because again, it's so obvious and yet nobody um, talks about it that way outside of certain theologians and certain ethicists, right? Mm -hmm. um, who were reframing things, you know, from let's say the seventies onward, especially. I, I remember at one point um, you talked about, for example, like uh, stealing, right? You, talk, you talked about like, if, um, if someone gives you like extra change or whatever at the, at the cash register, um, do you, do you, do you see it when you're in the parking lot and do you go and give it back? If it's like, you know, you get some extra $5 or something like that. Um, or, or do you keep it, you know? And it was, again, it was like playing with this idea that, oh, there's this moment 
But the point of the way that it was framed, you know, in our class was what kind of person are you at that moment? Are you a thief? If you're a thief, you'll keep the money. If you're not a thief, you'll return the money. It was like, who are you? Is the question not what do you do with this $5 bill? Right. And and that just fundamental question of like, who are you and how do you become the people you are? And and then and then, you know, as you're in a class like that, and and especially if you're in ministry and you're calling the church or you grew up in the church, and you're saying, wait, why am I even <laughs> why why am I like, hmm, well, how much money? You know, like why am I yeah, even, yeah. like Right. So, I mean, some of the things we think of as moral problems, we maybe think there's a standard list of moral problems, but that list didn't drop from the sky. That, So, like, we encounter that in my class that I mentioned when we talk about um, physician-assisted suicide. And, you know, by and large, people want that in our society. They want to be able to determine the end of their life. And... Um, but quite apart from like whether that's right or wrong, uh, we can ask not and and those character questions you brought up those can be asked of the whole society. How did we how did we as a society come to uh, value that uh, so much? And then you can get into well, there you can lots of different ways of answering that. But I mean, think about I, I think about in that regard how we how people tend to die these days in our society. We tend to die. Um, uh, alone and in hospitals and, uh, or even not with our families, not with our extended families. I mean, you used to, and in other cultures, like, I guess Japan is like like this and probably many other cultures, when you grow old, you don't rely on your retirement accounts and, you know, live on your own until you die. You go and live with your children, or maybe you've lived with your children all along. And so then your children and your grandchildren, uh, take care of you and you until you die at home. Um, and and so, you know, people don't, we don't want to be a burden in our society. And so we want to end our lives on our terms. At least that's one of the major, you know, reasons for having that. But, you know, that says something about who we are as a society. What if we were more used to being quote unquote burdens to each other constantly? We were more interdependent with each other and we were relying, sometimes I, you know, I'm used to relying on you because, and then sometimes you're used to relying on me. And if we were better practiced at those things, um, the, what we think of as, you know, oh, euthanasia, a big moral topic that might not arise, you know? Uh, I mean, that's, there's probably a reason why I mean, sometimes it comes up. Well, what, what does the Bible have to say about this? Well, guess what? The Bible doesn't have anything to say about that. The, this is a problem we created and it's a, it's a moral, so we need to be suspicious of what we take for granted as moral uh, topics, you know? Yeah. How do you, when, when you have, so you have a Christian university and, you know, that can mean whatever, but it at least means that you're able to, you know, presume or, or speak from that um, sort of, you know, grounding or that kind of perspective uh, freely, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whether your students are wherever they're at in their particular faith sort of journey or connection with the Lord or not. Um, when you just start to describe then like the Christian life or, you know, how you start to describe the kinds of people that Jesus forms or that the gospels are meant to shape, um, do your students recognize those people? Uh, do your students, does it sound like those are somebody else somewhere? <laughs> does it sound, I, cause I remember being disconcerted that at a Christian seminary, your descriptions of how a Christian life is formed and manifest or, or functions as, as a witness sounded uncomfortably not familiar, right? Like uncomfortably right, right. strange for someone um, who yeah. was in the church, pastoring a church, preaching sermons every week, you know, like grew up in the church, never, never left the church for long and was really serious about the church, loved the Bible, grew up with the Bible, memorizing the Bible, all of those things. And you were describing a Christian life that, and if I were to go home, I remember I would leave class and I would go you know, talk to, you know, whoever. And, 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 and I, and I'd be like, oh my gosh, and this, this, this. And it, and it sounded like, you know, I had come from Mars. It sounded like, like, what are you talking about? Because it was using 
Christian, the Christian life, scripture, you know, theological things that are supposed to be at the center of what we as Christians are up to. And they are so far away from what sounded possible or believable, not, not believable, but as can a person really be or do or say, like, yeah. is that, that can't be normal. That can't well, be normal. I- so, uh, yeah, I, and I did that on purpose. And I think I've, um, I mean, I continue to do that. I, I'm not at a, it's funny, Ashland is, um, oh, we have so many conversations here at Ashland about what kind of a college this is. Mm-hmm. It's actually not technically a Christian college, but it, it's, it, it, unlike a lot of colleges, it never really severed its ties, ties with its founding denomination, which is the Brethren Church. And the Brethren are uh, a kind of Anabaptist, um, but they're not quite as, um, uh, kind of resolute in their pacifism. Uh, well, they're really not resolute at all anymore in their pacifism, although some individuals are. But there are other, you know, there's Mennonites and, and Quakers and um, Church of the Brethren, which is different, th- that are more resolute. So I, I'm aware that I'm describing a version of Christianity that's more, I don't know, ex- extreme, more discipleship oriented, uh, that's more I, I, the term red letter Christians probably known to your audience. Um, you know, it, it's more about loving your enemies and all that tough stuff that Jesus taught um, than we're used to. And so a few years ago, there were some brethren, I was asked to address the issue of peace and nonviolence to some high school students who were brought to campus over the summer as part of the Brethren Youth Academy. Um, I think that's what it was called. And they, uh, so, but my, I took the approach that of, of, reminding them that you are a peace church. This is who you are. This is who you are. And it was, it was, um, it was too much for them. They, they didn't invite me back next time because I think yeah. these poor kids, they, they got together afterward. Afterward, it was much like what you were saying after our classes, they were like, wait a minute, but we don't, that's not who we thought we were, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think that is a little bit of my style to be like, oh, wow, uh, you know, to cause some cognitive dissonance, like, oh, gosh, maybe I'm not, you know, I say I love and worship Jesus. And I guess Jesus did say, if you love those who love you, you know, what good is that? Even the Gentiles do that, but love your enemies and, and pray for those who persecute you. And then you think, well, who are our enemies? Uh, do I love them? I mean, I live in Ohio, uh, rural Ohio, where, uh, you know, the Christian faith is for many people, I don't mean to reduce it, but for many people, it really is uh, at some level about um, uh, family, you know, lo- you know, and family, friends, and God. You know, it's like, but family and friends, that's the easy stuff. You don't need the <laughs> son of God to come and tell us to love our family and our friends. We need him to tell us to love our enemies and to do it. And we are his enemies. Mm. We put him to death. Another version of this is when I teach on capital punishment, and I don't have all Christian students. I'd say, I'd yeah. say probably a third are, are very keen. Probably a third are not Christian at all, and a third are neither one way or the other. But when I teach on capital punishment, I try to get students to consider what does the cross of Christ have to do with capital punishment? Um, it is a capital punishment, but uh, in my experience. I think in 12 years of teaching uh, this class, I've never had a student who's like, yeah, my thinking about capital punishment is um, revolves around my understanding of the cross. Now, it's a complicated question, what in fact the cross has to do with capital punishment, because it's not like um, Jesus was guilty. But just the fact that, you know, it's like, um, this is, we are given a strange ethic, you know? And I think when I taught your class, we may have read John Milbank, who has an essay called Can Morality Be Christian? And it comes from his book, The Word Made Strange. And I love, it's a hard book, but um, the, the title's awesome. The Word Made Strange is like, it needs to be made strange again to us. The gospel is not just unusual, it's, um, it offends. It is, uh, you know, it really offends and grates against our normal moral sensibilities. And so his answer to Can Morality Be Christian is basically no, because morality and Christianity are so at odds. And I was trying to say this, uh, I mean, I was uh, anticipating this earlier when I was saying that I, I introduced principles like double effect and the trolley problem 
and then try to dismantle them and destroy them. And, and for that, I, I, I don't know if I was doing this at the time, you know, that you were taking my classes, but uh, I've really gone to the writings of Soren Kierkegaard and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We're both in, a, um, I don't know if this is a coincidence, they're both in a Lutheran tradition that's really suspicious of um, rules, you know, and ethics can feel a lot like rules, like, oh, let's apply this principle, let's apply this rule, then we'll know what to do. Well, um, then we'll know good and evil. And as, uh, as Bonhoeffer pointed out, um, knowing good and evil is the temptation of the serpent. He quoted, or someone else, I guess, quoted Karl Barth, who said, the serpent's temptation is the invention of ethics. So it's like the serpent invented ethics. And, and at the beginning of a book called Ethics, Bonhoeffer says, it's the primary task of Christian ethics to completely, I forget his exact language, but to completely show how worthless this question of ethics is. Why? Because what do Christians do? What were Adam and Eve supposed to do? Trust God. You don't need to trust God if you know good and evil. And that's what's tempting about these principles as, mm -hmm. as valuable at one level as double effect is and weighing intention and all kinds of stuff. Uh, at the end, it, it relieves you of the need to, to trust God, or in language I'm more comfortable with, of trusting our moral formation of the kind of people that God has made us to be. So that when you walk past someone at the edge of the Grand Canyon, you're, most of us are not thinking, okay, should I push them off or not? You know, <laughs> Because we don't have to, we, we aren't those kinds of people. And that's wonderful, right? Thank God we're not. But we're, you know, and there are all kinds of, as you mentioned before, habits and practices that make us into the kinds of people we are. But, and tragically, we haven't allowed, we haven't always allowed those habits and practices to form us as we should. We've been formed by other habits and practices. We spend much more time, you know, thinking of the world as a marketplace rather than creation. When you talked about, um, yeah, the kind of people we're made to be, right? And you mentioned even speaking to the Brethren Church about who they're supposed to be. <laughs> um, yeah. But that is sort of the challenge, especially of Protestant or American Christianity, right? Is that we don't really have traditions and communities that are strong enough or or histories for many people that are long enough for the church to be a community that actually forms us. Mm -hmm. um, we're so mobile, we're so independent in our decision making, we're so non-committal maybe um, about place and about denomination, you know, about all sorts of things that it, it struck a young evangelical kid in your class as incredible that you would be formed by your church and your church tradition because i'm thinking of this private personal life with jesus mm -hmm. in which i have to negotiate all of these questions you know as they arise um but i'm not thinking that the church i belong to is meant to form and make me into a kind of person that makes sense of the church, the community, and the narrative that we are as a people, right? Like that, that idea that there are communities that many of us are involved in that have a much more decisive shaping effect on us than the church ever has. I mean, maybe if we're a certain kind of Catholic, maybe if we're a hardcore Mennonite, maybe if we're, but if we're sort of middle of the road, you know, evangelical or formerly evangelical, or whatever we are, and you go to the church that's more or less convenient, or you just sort of find a, 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 a the best speaker or, you know, and then your family moves maybe every handful of years or whatever, like the thought that you have a church might already be strange, but the thought that you could, that you owe something to a community of faith to represent the things it's meant to be in the world, right? Like that idea that there are these communities or these, um, these churches or these traditions that are shaping people already sounds incredible to so many, right? Already yeah. sounds strange. Um, 
Well, you, and the, the the churches aren't. I mean, the, this is where um, maybe we talk as though the church is is forming us, but it's a bit of a it, it's a play on words because, as you say, it isn't actually. And I mean, I think you're right that the liturgical churches, I mean, this was my training in, in Cambridge and I was around a lot of people at the time, a lot of them coming out of Duke and Cambridge and other places who were talking about the liturgical formation of Christians and how we're formed by Christian worship, liturgical worship in particular. And, you know, I, and um, I love that theme. On the other hand, there are a lot of people who are, um, who engage in liturgical worship who aren't formed by it. So, I mean, that's not, so I became, on the one hand, um, appreciative and partly skeptical of, uh, of that approach. And it's, it's hard not to despair. I mean, we are commanded to be hopeful. But, you know, when you look at the church's inability to form disciples, uh, you know, in this really rich way, in this very strange morality called Christian ethics, um, it, I'll admit it's hard. It's really hard to know where to address that, you know? Well, and, and you're, you're once a month, let's say in, mm -hmm. in, in the church as the, the preacher, um, you know, you, you could feel the, okay, I have only so much time. I, you know, I, I can only get a little, it's a little drop in this like ocean of their attention of their week um, you know, you feel all those things. I've often felt, um, especially now teaching high schoolers, it's it's so much more a center of formation to be a teacher on a high school campus mm -hmm. than anything I've experienced in some sense in the church, except by an accumulation maybe of years. But um, it, it just is because there's just so much more time and contact and and you know these kinds of and 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 regularity and, and all sorts of different things but there, yeah. it just seems so much more viable right there are institutions that are very good at forming people uh in our society mm -hmm. but the church in its sort of once a week i mean i think the average church goer right the average christian goes to church 1.6 times a month and mm -hmm. and their mind they're they're committed that's what that means right it's like they're that's that's like a central part of their life 1.6 times a month they go for a couple hours maybe um and and you know the idea as you said of taking them into a world that is meant to be unbelievably strange where morality as such is not christian as such yeah. where where this calculus of common sense and all of these other issues of right and wrong that the society it might be trying to work out is still not and sometimes the opposite of what it means to bear christian witness and be obedient to christ yeah that that sort of question of of formation can be can be <laughs> easily despairing can be overwhelming well, um, and th this is um I don't know if this will seem comical to, to folks listening, but uh, my family, most of my family has been doing CrossFit for the last several years. And boy, talk about formation. We're at, the CrossFit, <laughs> we're at the CrossFit gym six days a week and, and twice on Saturday, you know, we go back, <laughs> we go first thing and then we go back. And, um, and, you know, I, I've, I've sometimes, I'm not, I'm not the first person to, to make this connection, but it's like, wow, this is, uh, this is definitely a formative institution. Um, and, you know, we are, we are, and, and apart from the sort of lessons or the philosophy or something, which uh, I think about, you know, we're all engaged in something together. We're trying to become better or stronger or fitter, lose weight or whatever. And, um, and we're, we're toughing it out together. And people say, you know, if you suffer together, um, then you will grow together. And I, you know, this is my first book was on martyrdom and you don't want to wish suffering on anyone. On the other hand, uh, Christians who suffer together as Christians have a very different experience of uh, unity and the, and the difference of uh, what it means to be a Christian versus, you know, someone who's not. Uh, I mean, that's just all of that's raised. I mean, I, I take it that's a theme of your podcast here. I mean, yeah. We're living in Babylon, but it's like that's that's provocative because we it seems like we're not, you know. Um, so I and I don't know, and, and part of me has uh despaired even of maybe it's partly where I am living 
serving geographically. But if you, if I were to tell people in Ashland, Ohio, you know, we're living in Babylon, I think a lot of them be like, um, it would, they'd immediately map that onto um, some hot button culture war um, where I am, they'd be right wing um, political topics. And they'd be like, yeah, of course we are. So, I mean, that even that language then needs to be explained. So, I mean, I think this, I think we're kind of exploring like, what are the strategies of helping people uh, appreciate the strangeness of the gospel? Um, and then what is, and then we have to spend a lot of time with that gospel, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is where, you know, some people point out that once, if you do that enough, uh, the church is going to shrink. I mean, it's already kind of shrinking, you know, I mean, it's shrinking overall and it's very much shrinking in certain segments, um, but it may shrink even more because we don't want that strangeness. I mean, we're not immediately going to be like, Ooh, give me some of that. You know, I know it's easy for Protestants and evangelicals, especially probably to say our formation comes through the sermon, right? So we're going to, we're going to save people by preaching the right uh, message. And I, you know, and I suppose I think that too, when I preach, <laughs> but that's putting a lot of stock in my own preaching, I suppose. But then you think, well, what, what it's the messages that we are receiving uh, kind of tangibly and um, physically. I mean, they're, it's the Eucharist and, or it's the, um, it's the fact of gathering. I mean, all of this has been very difficult of course with COVID and, you know, you've got churches that are trying to do virtual communion and stuff which is, you know, a paradox. But what does that show? It shows that we've, we've thought that you can, and I sympathize with people who are trying to find the right way there. And I'm not sure I know what the right way is. I, although I think with communion, it's, if you can't gather, um, don't, don't receive communion because, uh, or you know, we're not going to baptize people remotely. You know, I hope no one's doing that. Um, and we would just, and it'll reinforce that, uh, that our normal life together is a tangible one where we're in contact with each other. Uh, and those are formative practices. Uh, and then of course you get churches that don't, they don't celebrate communion very much, or maybe the message about what this means is very thin, or, uh, it's a time for personal contemplation. It's very individualized, individualistic. Uh, there's just so much work to do to recover. You know, it's like those practices are there. We can, and even if we're doing them, we might not be doing them in a way that we're realizing their full potential. So I think it's lots of different angles, you know, to, to enrich our life together. Well, let me ask you this. When you teach a class like exploring Christian ethics or an intro to Christian ethics, let's just say people are like, okay, that's his training. That's he's a Christian ethicist. What is the goal uh, by the end of a class like that, you got some Christian students, you got some in the middle, some who could care less. What's the goal when you're introducing this subject of Christian ethics? You you said a little while ago, uh, you know, sort of quoting or paraphrasing maybe Milbank um, about whether or not Christian ethics has really anything or much to do with what people mean when they say morality. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I, I might want you to maybe clarify that even, or explain that even a little bit more, but what's yeah. the goal of an exploring Christian ethics class? What are you hoping to say? Okay, whatever else they decide to do next or church they attend or do not attend, um, it will be a successful class if I can at least make these things clear. Yeah, yeah. I think my sort of large, larger goals and this is where I, I think of myself when I think of myself as a professor and not just a teacher, it's like, gosh, what do I profess? You know? Yeah. Um, and it really is the strangeness, uh, the strangeness of what, who Christians are. And, um, and, and I mean, that's really hard. I'm, I'm gearing up to teach that class again in a couple of weeks and I'm going to have 18 year olds in my class. And I think that's probably too, that's too lofty of a goal to drive an entire course for 18 year olds, especially considering that maybe a quarter of them, I said earlier, maybe a third of them are are keen about their faith. So, and then even with those, those might be the hardest 
students to reach really because they already they're keen about a faith that I'm not going to say it's wrong or that they've been misguided but I mean I I think they will be introduced to material and perspectives that are meant to enrich the faith that they already have and not everyone's prepared for that um and so I mean I sometimes I sometimes think you know would, wouldn't it be neat if we're um planting little little time bombs that is kind of a violent image but like um, that go off in church, in churches, in some future time, yeah, like, um, uh, you, you know, correcting bad ideas that, that students might not uh, know that they've been encountering their whole life, but next time they encounter it, or maybe a few years later, it'll click and be like, wait a minute, that's not right. Um, like one of my big pet peeves, and I've been doing some teaching on atonement, is the, is the idea that Jesus came to die. Uh, you know, that people believe that, that Jesus came um, to die rather than he came to, to give his life, as Mark 10, 45 says. Uh, and there's a difference between uh, going to die and going to give your life. And I, I, I know there's a theological example, but it really has a lot of payoff in terms of ethics. And I, I, I teach about, briefly, about um, Father Damien of Molokai who went to the Hawaiian island of Molokai in the 19th century. He was a Catholic priest, and that was a leper colony. And he was aware that they had no, no one to administer the last rites to them as they died there. And so he went to um, Molokai to be their priest, and he developed leprosy, and he died from it. And so then I asked the question, why did Father Damien go to Molokai? Was it to die? Of course not, you know. Uh, but it was to give his life. And that, that meant his death. But giving your life is a bigger uh, enterprise than going to die. So, and, and I just think, you know, Jesus was about a, a bigger enterprise. And so, and we've been given, depending on your tradition, although this cuts across Protestants and Catholic and all the rest of it, we've been given this transactional uh, savior you know, who, who goes on a mission, who happened to teach some things along the way, but that's not the main point. The main point is that you've got to get him dead. Um, but that's a thinned out and, and, and ultimately um, dangerous um, approach to things. So I would love it if my students, and this has happened and it gratifies me uh, to my core, <laughs> you know, uh, but their little time bombs go off in church and they're like, mm, that's not right. You know, uh, what I'm hearing here is not uh, that's not the gospel. Uh, the gospel is something richer, deeper, um, bigger. Um, I, I can't have that goal for every student because probably, you know, 10% of them will get to that point. But I at least uh, hope that they are, um, you know, more modestly encountering ideas that are complicating what they think Christianity is. Do you think that the strangeness of the gospel is, is something that is, I mean, I guess one thing that I found in our class was it was, it was humbling to be a, you know, face to face with the direct commandments of Jesus um, to not be let off the hook about them, to not be assumed that to, for not, not to be assumed that, these exist to show you that you can't do them. Um, mm -hmm. And, and to, to just, you know, I had taken a bond offer class right before I took your class and had just read, you know, ethics. It just read, I mean, it was just like, I was just so like, like set up to, to be wrestling with some big things. And, and the same thing with your classes with the bond offer class, um, they just kept bringing me back to, if I am a Christian, the central thing my life needs to be concerned with is obeying Jesus. It wasn't that complicated. And yet it was incredible to think how over two decades of life or whatever it was at that point, um, how sort of comfortably and like conscientiously good I had gotten at not taking Jesus seriously. Um, and, and I, I, that's what was so stunning was like, 
yeah, I've been in classes where it's provocative, where, where, you know, teachers trying to, you know, really push or mess with, with some of received, you know, beliefs or things like that. And sometimes it's okay. A lot of times it feels really put upon. It feels, you know, generic. It feels like it's, they're on some trip and they're really proud of themselves. And, and, and that our, the class I had with you and that Bonhoeffer class were not that I had other classes that were like that, where it was like, well, you don't know, but actually, you know, <laughs> um, and it was like, uh, you know, gotcha kind of classes, you know, or gotcha questions and things like that. Um, whereas with your class and with the Bonhoeffer class, it wasn't like I was being set up to find out how, you know, foolish I was. It was, we were talking about how we um, so easily at all times and all places um, avoid Jesus <laughs> and yeah. and and have a version of Christianity in which he is not often the central <laughs> figure despite the name and that so much of our moral reasoning comes from uh you know old covenant questions and examples and so much of our moral reasoning comes from you know cultural and secular examples or or you know other experiences and i just remember like the the value of that class was that it took more things out of the way of me seeing the commands of Jesus. And that if this is what I'm up to, I have to be up to these things. And there's not 10,000 of them. There is, there is a handful or several maybe, and they're very hard and they're very clear. And, and it's more like, how do you become a person who can love your enemies? How do you become a person who does not use language this way? How do you become a person who does not seek to get someone back for a slight? How do you become a person who can forgive beyond what you uh, would typically be able to, <laughs> to do? It, it became like, if this is true, and if this is what it means to be a Christian and live a Christian life, why is it so hard? You know, that, that why question then send, sent me back to the other things of, well, I'm in the text regularly. I read it. I read it in the morning. I, I preach it on Thursday night. I go to church. I, I do all these things. What is not helping me obey Jesus? What kind of forms of Christianity have I sort of allowed myself or created that are allowing or, or helping me avoid the commandments of Jesus, a simple obedience to Christ? I remember, you know, there's that line in Bonhoeffer's discipleship, the obedient believe and the believer obeys, you mm -hmm. know, and, and he has it at least in the English translation. It's like single sentence with a semicolon, the obedient believe and the believer obeys and, and the inescapability of that sentence. And then going from that into your class where we just started naming things that we do to not believe and obey yeah. while still yeah. thinking that's what we're up to. Um, it was it was so bracing because it wasn't oh I got to deal with Professor Hovey it was like I have to deal with Jesus every time I left it was like I have to deal with Jesus and that command I have to deal with this part of Matthew I, I have to mm -hmm. like you know I'm a I'm a classic product like I I have to deal with yeah. the Bible you know in yeah. a way that I thought I was um, awesome. so I feel yeah. like that was the the great um, sort of strangeness, the great provocation, and why it has lasted and and been a decisive shift in how I understand the Christian life, the church, uh, my role as a pastor, as a preacher. Um, you know, uh, to to get people to face to face as as well as I can with Jesus, uh, and to just just continually point out how strange he actually is. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it, the time bombs continued to go off. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. I love it. Um, but yeah, I, I just felt like, okay, there was a moment the Lord had for me to just see that this is what this is all about, that, that he has to be. I remember at one of our, <laughs> one of our, I think it was our political theology class. Um, there was a student, we were talking about some uh, political subject, some political theory or whatever it was. And there was a student who said, but I mean, it's not like, it's not like every single question or every single thing I can go through like the filter of Jesus. And, and by that point, more than half the class was like, yes, it, it has to, 
<laughs> like, yes, it, it had, because I, 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 it was just one of these wonderful moments in which like a totally normal perspective, which was like, you have, you know, political ideas, and then you have Jesus ideas, and a Christian has to, you know, hold these ideas with these ideas alongside these ideas. And there was a moment in the class where by that point, we had been thinking in this little community enough that many of us, it was just like, of course, that's all it could mean to be a Christian is that every single thing would have to travel through the question or the lens or whatever it is of, is this obedient to Jesus? Yeah, yeah. There isn't another calculus, right? There isn't another form of doing the math. Um, I love it. Someone gave me a bumper sticker. Maybe people have heard the slogan, which is, um, uh, I think that when Jesus said, love your enemies, he probably meant don't kill them. Um <laughs> And of course, there's a long tradition of thinking you can love your enemies and kill them. You just can't hate them right. as you kill them, <laughs> you, you know, and Augustine did a very sophisticated job of, of laying that out. Yeah. I mean, one of the issues there is that um, uh, is that there's more to uh, a Christians thinking about who Jesus is than a, a new lawgiver, you know, that, that our obedience is simply to the commands of Jesus um, mm -hmm. as found in the Bible. Because if 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 uh, if that's all that that means, then we are given a new law. Like, how are we going to conceptualize the way that we're confronted by God? You know, in a way that calls forth faith and obedience, um, but not in a way that just you know calls us to obey new rules. It would be it would be convenient in a certain way if it was just here's the next here's the next ten right yeah right Here's the next 10 things um but the the strangeness of the christian life um sort of the the blessing of that strangeness is even if it's strange in its what do we say logic or motivation or or um foundation whatever it might be that makes it strange um it seems to me as it is and as it was with christ himself when it is lived well it is it's goodness, right? It's good. It, it blesses, it blesses neighbors, right? It is, it's, it's a, it's love in a way that is recognized. It's like the reasoning, you know, that how you got there, the, why do you, um, you know, why is he going to this colony of lepers? Like what, why would someone, you know, can't he just zoom in and, and do it virtually? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, like those, those things, maybe, you know, fundamental sort of disorienting things that make the Christian life what it is, its effects, um, you know, like the, the, the trees that are blown by the wind, right? You know, the, the effects are, are good, right? Like it is something that is meant to, to have embodiment in the world at a bedside um, with the grandmother, Right, that the there are things that about this Christian life because they are meant to to be in the presence of others. They are meant to to be incarnational in that way. For all of the strangeness or the difficulty of sort of separating yourself, maybe from how you previously thought about certain things, like those things can be fundamentally charged, provocative, you know, a dynamic, you know, course or class, but. The Christian life itself, as a witness, um, that's meant to resemble and and embody Christ in the world, um, is good, and and when it when it's seen, when it's lived, it is something that that is is sweet. That there is a yeah. it's gentle. It's well, it, yeah. And so, I mean, I at the risk of like love is the answer, you know, <laughs> uh, kind of thing. You know, I, I it's really important to, if we're trying to kind of get outside of ethics being defined as simply doing the right thing, because that can, I mean, that, that turns into a very kind of rigid, um, burdensome existence, you know, should I brush my teeth or not this morning, I could be doing, I could use that time uh, to help people, shouldn't I be doing that, you know, it's like, you could be, you could really ruin yourself. But um, uh, I, I really think the, the answer to that is to think about things like love and gratitude and things that exceed the bounds of requirements. So like, we know you're supposed to give your mother flowers on Mother's Day, but what if you gave your mother flowers not on Mother's Day? Like, <laughs> okay. that's good. That's better. That's a richer life. That's a, 
a, you know, just a more fantastic expression of love and gratitude and everything else that it communicates than the obligation that comes with, well, you know, the right thing to do. So, and it's like, those are, now we're at the edges of life, you know, or the edges of what we're supposed to do, um, or we're beyond what we're supposed to do. And this is where people talk about, there's all this literature now about being outside of ethics or beyond ethics. And, and it's like, but that, that's actually when things become really interesting. The goodness of a world, uh, uh, the goodness of the world is most colorful and vibrant when, uh, when it's, when it's not an obligation, you know, when it occurs to us or when it, um, you don't want to say when it comes naturally because forgiveness isn't going to come naturally, but, but when it is, um, you know, driven, uh, I mean, we, we lack the language. That's actually part of this phenomenon. You, you run out of moral language and at some point, and then you have to keep talking or at least keep living. And so, you know, and, but you're still, are, are you outside of ethics or has it just all of a sudden become super interesting? And that's, that's the stuff I'm interested in. Right. Well, Dr. Hovey, uh, Craig, thank you so much for, for just taking this time to get us thinking a little differently and just opening up some of these things. Um, I look forward to having you back to talk more specifically about a couple of topics that came up in this, in this little chat. But just as an as a, as a intro to you, but as an intro to the kind of work that you do, and, and to just say, you know, as one of your former students, as one of your students, um, it, 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 is, it has inspired um, my teaching as well, not only in the church, but, but even just as a, a teacher, um, you know, out there in, in the world itself, um, to know that, man, there can be moments in which you can encounter an idea that is so irresistible, um, that is so compelling, that that opens up something that just simply was never opened until there was some language to, to open it. Um, and it really can happen. And it really can be decisive in someone's in someone's life, in someone's life of faith. And mm -hmm. yeah, we're Protestants. We believe a lot in, in, that, in that spoken word and everything. But from time to time, um, there, there are those moments in which um, the truth of something comes through and it really does change someone. And uh, so it's just a big, the podcast is a big thank you um, to just saying, you know, for the work that you're doing, for, for being fresh and ambitious uh, <laughs> right out of grad school, mm -hmm. and giving, yeah. us, giving us some major things to tackle and major things to, to wrestle with in a serious way. It, it took us seriously and, and myself and, and many of my neighbors in that class really felt like, man, we want to rise to that challenge and, awesome. and not let go of those things beyond a, a, a 10 week course or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Thank you. You're for welcome. That. And I thank that. you for taking this time. Uh, I look forward to having uh, the next conversation. Awesome. Thanks so much. This has been great. That's our time, my friends. If you would like to support the podcast, please do subscribe and rate us on iTunes. And if you would like even more content and to become a patron of the podcast, head on over to FromBabylonWithLove.com, click on newsletter, and sign up there. Until then, many thanks to producer Zach Leach for all the twists and turns, and to Lonesome and Muddy, the only house band that'll survive the apocalypse. This has been From Babylon with Love.